Our sermon text this morning comes from the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 4. You would open in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 24. We'll be reading the whole chapter, verses 1 through 22. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, May my lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, Out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, and David and his men went up to the stronghold. Let's pray. Our gracious and triune God, as we hear your scripture this morning, we ask that you would cause it to take root deeply in our hearts, that we would be able to meditate upon it day and night, that we would be planted like trees beside streams of water bearing much fruit in season. We ask that you would do this by your spirit and for your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. 
How do we think through challenging decisions in life? Everyone has challenging decisions, some more frequently than others, and yet, what guides our decision-making as we go through those times? How much does our hope play into those decisions? How much do we think about where our hope lies? When things are going well, it's usually not a question we'll find ourselves considering what need do we have for hope when life is going well. But what are those moments when you seem to be caught in indecision, when you're struggling between either two rights or between what seems to be two wrongs? Who do you listen to in those moments? Where do you turn for advice? How do you make that choice? And what are you trusting in? Or in other words, where is your hope? Well, this is the central question that David faces in the text this morning. Who will I listen to and where is my hope found? This takes us to our first point in verses 1 through 4, the scene set and the trap laid. And really, this, this story begins in the last verse of the previous chapter where David goes up and lives in the stronghold of En Gedi. And this is significant from the narrator's perspective because En Gedi is a unique area compared to where David had been fleeing from Saul before. En Gedi is located, if you go out of the Dead Sea, which runs generally north-south, if you go to the western bank close to Israel, you come out into these lowlands, and that's where En Gedi is located at a spring. And then immediately behind En Gedi to the west, there's a steep cliff, and then you end up in the Judean highlands, the hill country. And this is where David has decided to take refuge, in the stronghold of En Gedi. So he's in these tall, rocky areas. And this, this area is famous for the Qumran community. You might have come across Qumran scrolls, these caves where they find all these documents. And it seems over and over again, people are finding things in caves in that area. And the reason is there's a lot of caves in that area. The rocks just support cave formation. And so out the gate, the narrator is making clear to us that Saul is going to have his work cut out for him. Even though David is out with 600 of his closest warriors, Saul is going to have to search every cave to try to find where these guys are hidden. And Saul has been pursuing David, except for a slight intermission where he went to go kill some Philistines. And now the narrator picks up the story again. And he picks it up in verse 1 with Saul returning from following after the Philistines. And Saul's bloodlust is already raised at this point. He's been chasing David, been frustrated. David has been slipping through his fingers time and time again. When Saul goes around one side of the mountain, David goes around the other. And finally, his men come to him and say, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And this sets the stage for the conflict. And so Saul takes 3,000 of his closest friends and goes to find David among the rocks in the caves. And like we thought, this is already a challenging task, even in the best of times. Even today, with modern mountain rescue and wilderness rescue, it's a challenge to find somebody in terrain like this, and these people are usually wearing orange and trying to be found. And David was certainly not in that, in that system of being visible. Even today, with infrared optics and overhead spotters, if you're going out to try to find somebody, you might think of Saddam Hussein hiding in a little spider hole in Iraq. It's not easy to find somebody, and so Saul has his work cut out for him. And he's going with 3,000 people through diff, difficult, rough, and rocky terrain. And 3,000 people tend to, to broadcast their showing up well before they actually get there. And so David is going to have ample time to hide when he hears the sound of 3,000 people scrambling over the rocks. Because this is the kind of terrain that, that tears the soles of your boots and fights you every step of the way. And so Saul is working hard to try to find David. And doubtless, at this point, the original audience would be expecting to hear about how David, this, this field crafter who had 
who had been such an expert shepherd in his time in the hill country, he's going to use all that knowledge to slip away once again, some miraculous escape. Say the stage certainly seems to be set for that. Perhaps a, a little jab at Saul for how incompetent he is to find David. Maybe that would be expected. Well, this is at least plainly turning out to be a story about a cunning game of cat and mouse in the wilderness. And the expectation is to hear about David's cleverness leading him to victory. But the story moves to verse 3, and at this point we come to a sheepfold. And the sheepfold is this permanent sheep pen that was, that was set up. Low stone walls that would keep the sheep penned in away from enemies. And likely at this point, this sheepfold is against one of these cliffs that David has been wandering around. A three-sided sheep pen was pretty standard at the time, and it seems like an unnecessary detail, but it paints this picture of peace and no conflict, and everything is, is calm. When the sheep go to the sheepfold, they're happy and they're safe, and the shepherd is caring for them. And so we see the terrain that's laid out before us with this road that leads up past this, this low pastoral scene of sheep happily grazing in their sheepfold and this cliff beside. It's a great place for a family picture, you'd think. And this is where the scene is going to get a little bit weird for a second. See, Saul has been breaking brush and working hard going cross-country, scouting for any sign of his prey. And apparently at this point, the coffee caught up with him. And the Hebrew gives us this almost crass euphemism designed to paint Saul in a very unflattering light. He has to go to the bathroom in the cave. And for some reason, this needed to be recorded for us. You see, Saul is not the king that Israel should have sought. And so the narrator makes it clear this is the king that's not even going to be recorded behaving in a very kingly way. We're going to record when he has to go to the bathroom. And so for all the rest of history, Saul will be remembered, at least in part, for what happens when he thought he had a little bit of privacy. But this verse has even more to say, because this is the cave that catches Saul's eye, this one particular cave that stands out, and it happens to be the same cave that caught David's eye as well. David and his men, hiding out from Saul, were carefully tucked away in the deep recesses of this cave, and hiding 601 men in a cave must be a fairly decently sized cave. And yet, they're hanging out in the back of this cave, being smart, not advertising their position. And who should mosey into their cave but the man who was hunting them? Saul. Saul, alone and unprepared, just happens into this cave. He's not ready for a fight. He's got other stuff on his mind. And, and David and his team of warriors are sitting there, and they realize, wait a second. Something crazy has just happened. And clearly then, everything that's happened thus far, this game of cat and mouse, is leading to this moment for David, where the end would be at hand for Saul. The king of Israel who would be remembered for being slain like a ewe lamb when he was caught with his trousers down. And though it seems that this verse was the peak of the tension being built up, there must have been something here. In fact, the tension moves forward to verse 3. And we see that David's men, sorry, to verse 4, David's men introduce a new layer here because the narrator actually slows down the pace of the text. And this verse is, is one, this one unit of the Hebrew text is actually twice as long as all the verses before it. And if you were a bard recounting the story or a storyteller in Israel telling the story, this is where you'd slow down and you'd see your audience lean in and you'd say, this is where I'm going to really embellish because there's a lot to, to go after here. You see, David's men claim something that polarizes the situation. They claim something that, that we might just gloss over here. 
but they claim that God's providence is actually God speaking to David and giving him a command to do something. And so this slowing down of the plot almost mirrors how time must have frozen for David as he's trying to consider what his men have just told him. Behold, the day on which Yahweh says to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him according to what is good in your sight. What must have gone through David's head? This certainly wasn't what he'd been planning on. He was planning on going and sleeping in a cave. He was thinking probably as a good leader about how best to care for his men. He'd maybe even drawn up a contract with the owner of that sheepfold outside for some lamb tonight. He certainly wasn't thinking, what do I do when my enemy who's been chasing me suddenly wanders into my cave and is completely at my mercy? And so for David, everything changes and he's confronting a life and death decision. And not only life and death, a question of obedience or disobedience. See, David's men saw Saul walk into the cave and they thought they knew exactly what had happened. The text gives us no reason to doubt the purity of their motives, but they thought that the moment must have come for David to seize the throne by force. Hadn't Yahweh made all this happen? Hadn't Yahweh led them to this cave first and set them up safely in the hidden parts of this cave? And then hadn't Yahweh drawn Saul into this trap? Hadn't Saul already been rejected by the prophet of the Lord? And hadn't David already been anointed as king? I mean, everything was just falling into place perfectly. And now Saul, painted in the most unflattering light possible, is within a knife's reach of David, and all David's problems could go away. You can see why his men would encourage him to strike. And yet David's actions betray the tension that he felt. This wasn't a clear decision for him like it was for his men. He sneaks up to where Saul had cast off his outer garment, and in stealth he cuts a corner off of the robe. And now the narrator has really drawn us in. And we're asked, well, what happened next? What's going to happen If David's already got his knife out and he's already emboldened by this one little success, where is his knife going to go next? And this takes us to our second point, the righteous actions of the righteous man. In verse 5, after cutting off the edge of the garment, we would expect to hear about David emboldened by this little success going after the big success and killing Saul, his enemy. And yet, the exact opposite is what happens. In cutting off the corner of Saul's garment, David's heart struck him and he realized the folly of what he was planning to do. He had nearly raised up his hand against the Lord's anointed. He'd very nearly put himself on the level of God. He'd almost just caused calamity. And if you've ever been at a stop sign and made a slight mistake or an error of judgment or not looked both ways enough, and suddenly a car comes hurtling out of what was your blind spot, and you slam on the brakes, you'll know how David felt right now. It's that moment of panic where you realize everything that could have just gone wrong, and you're just thinking through all the conclusions. How could this have just happened? How could I have not seen what was actually happening outside of my own vehicle? And this is what David is realizing now. And and David makes this plain in verse 6 that this is what was going through his mind, because Upon reflection, he realizes that he's not the kind of man who's going to break God's law to seize the throne. He realizes that those means will never be justified by their end. Perhaps God had given Saul into his hand. Perhaps not. It wasn't for David to decide, though. It was for David to wait upon the Lord's timing and to trust in the Lord for the Lord to make good his word to David that he would establish his throne. 
And so on coming to this realization, David turns to confront the men who he trusted, but who had goaded him against the king of Israel. And so verse 7 begins with David. And, and in the English, it says that he persuaded his men, but the Hebrew actually uses this odd term that's only ever used of speech here in scripture. And the word is literally tearing apart. He tore apart his men. The only other times we see this are when Samson tears apart a lion like he tears apart a goat or when the Levitical priests tear apart a bird to sprinkle its blood on the altar. This is clearly a violent action of violent tearing apart that the narrator is communicating. And it's this play on words because this tearing apart of the men comes just after David has torn the corner off of Saul's garment wrongly. But now this time, David tears apart in righteousness. But the narrator doesn't leave us in suspense for long. He tears his, his men apart with words. And this is the kind of thing that happens when someone makes plain to you just how bad you've messed up. It doesn't need someone to yell at you for you to realize this. You can be torn apart with just a glance sometimes, but David does it with words. And you can almost hear him. How could you leave me to break God's law like this? Don't you know that God is in control? Don't you trust God? Don't you know that I've been appointed, but not appointed to violate God's law, but to uphold it? And you can almost see David's men wilting back against the dark shadows of the cave as they realize this rebuke is in fact righteous. And then following this rebuke, David sets up his men not to rise up in violence against Saul. He tells them to stay put and to not lift up their hand. And because David realized the error of the advice he'd been tempted to follow, the next thing that happens is Saul gets up and moseys back on out of the cave, completely oblivious to everything that had just happened almost literally right behind his back. And you have to ask, how oblivious could this guy be? And then you realize that's what the narrator is asking as well. And that question can be applied to much of Saul's kingship. How oblivious is he to what's actually going on? And then in verse 8, having proved to himself that he couldn't raise his hand against God's anointed king, David rushes out of the cave and he calls after Saul. He calls out to him, my lord, the king. He addresses him with this royal form of address, showing all the deference of the royal court to this man who is planning to kill him. And he bows down and pays homage before the king. And this, this paying homage is the same sense that you usually find in worship. The people would bow down and pay homage to the Lord. But it's also used when people realize the great gap that lies between them and another person. See, when, when Boaz in the book of Ruth was gracious to Ruth in a way that she did not deserve being a foreigner and a Moabite, and Boaz shows her the grace as an Israelite able to even inherit, she's overwhelmed and she bows down and pays homage to Boaz and says, what grace have you shown me? And so here, all these years later, her great-grandson does the same thing for Saul. And this falling to his knees, bowing his face to the earth, leads to his pleading before the king of his case. And he humbles himself before the man who would take any opportunity to kill him, and indeed had tried several times in the past. Saul, searching through rocks and cliffs, has finally come face to face with his quarry, but not with his quarry with a sword in hand, but with his neck outstretched, bowing down before him. And once again, the narrator slows down the plot a little bit. See, David opens his speech to Saul with a simple, though leading question. Why are you listening to the wrong people? Why are you listening to people that would say that I want to do you harm? David makes known to Saul this, 
oblivious guy who couldn't clue in enough to realize that somebody was cutting off part of his clothes, David makes known to this guy all that had happened. David refused to kill Saul. He instead looked upon Saul with pity. And if it wasn't clear enough, he even tells Saul the reason. It's not because Saul was winning the award for best father-in-law of the year. And it's not because David was concerned about the legal ramifications or the legal fees that would be associated with killing the king of Israel. In fact, David says, it's because you are the Lord's anointed. It's because David has realized the right position that God has given to Saul, that David's hand has stayed. God had set Saul apart to rule. Unjustly, perhaps, Saul would rule, violently, temperamentally, but God had set him in power. Who was David to overrule this decree? And to prove the truth of his claims, David, in verse 11, holds out the edge of Saul's robe in his hand. And you can almost see Saul going from pretty clueless to slightly less clueless as he realizes that fabric looks awfully familiar. And he looks down at his robe and realizes that, oh, that is why it looks familiar. You cut this off of me. That moment of suddenly realizing how close he had come to death had a significant influence on Saul's thoughts. I mean, now the, the scene has shifted and he's the guy that had been driving down the road when you were at the intersection. He's the guy who was just listening to music, enjoying an afternoon drive when suddenly a car starts to pull out in front of him and he realizes, I'm just along for the ride at this point. There is nothing I can do. Realizing that his future was completely out of his control, Saul stops and listens some more. And David's actions prove his loyalty to God and then by extension to God's appointed ruler, to Saul. David makes the classic appeal. You heard what people said that I said about you. I mean, you could almost hear this in a middle school. It sounds like the same sort of thing. But what does David say? Look at what I actually did. I had every opportunity to take the throne just now. Every time, every chance, everything that I would have needed. And I did nothing to harm you. David's words then do what his hand would not, and they twist the knife into Saul's heart. I did not sin against you, and yet you lie in wait for my life. Even Saul couldn't be oblivious to this. And then David goes further. Having clued Saul into what was actually happening, he calls in the Lord, the covenant God of Israel, to witness against Saul. And so Saul, sitting in the defendant's chair, looks and sees a line of witnesses crowding into the courtroom against him. The fabric in David's hand, the testimony of David's lips, and now the Lord himself is coming in to condemn him and to vindicate David. And David carries on saying that, that the Lord will avenge him, but David will not lift his hand in defense of his own life. And so with all of these witnesses piling up against Saul, David piles on one more. He appeals to even the common grace land of Proverbs that were common at the time. He says, wicked people are known by their wickedness, but I will not be wicked against you, Saul. Saul's ego here is taking just blow after blow. And the comparison gets even more pointed. David, David just continues with this speech. Who is higher in Israel than the king of Israel? And who has less standing than a dead dog? Maybe some fleas. Okay, well, David says, what about a single flea? That's who I am to you, Saul. And yet you, the highest in Israel, have come out in force with an army to come after me. I have no malice in my heart toward you, and yet you think I'm a threat to you. And so with this proclamation of innocence, 
David continues bowing down, neck exposed, and he trusts him, entrusts himself to the Lord and to Saul's decision on what would do, be right to do. And so the tension has built to this point that even knowing the end of the story, even knowing how Saul is going to respond, there is even greater tension. Was, is he going to go into defensive mode? Is he going to try to proclaim his own righteousness? Maybe he's going to try to stick a spear through David again? Well, this takes us to our last section, verses 16 through 22, this declaration of righteousness from Saul. Hebrew narrative is usually pretty spare on the talking. As you've read through the Old Testament, no doubt you've noticed, there's not a lot of speech in it. People are usually described a little bit, and then they talk a little bit, and then something else is described. And yet Saul has just sat through a pretty long speech. And then, having listened to this pretty long speech, he asks what seems like a pretty dumb question. Is that your voice, my son David? And he's looking at him. He's looking at him, kneeling down on the ground. This is his, son, his son-in-law. And we realize that this isn't really a question of who are you. This is a question that's more of the force. Is this really what you have to say to me? Do you really mean this? And if you've ever asked somebody a question that you were kind of nervous about, maybe you've asked someone to marry you or to go on a date, or you've been asked to be married or been asked on a date, then you know how this can kind of go, how you can use these words. It's this idea of, of, wow, is, I can't believe you're saying this to me. Or, on the negative side, wow, I can't believe you're saying this to me. And this is where Saul is in life at this point. How could things have gone so sideways that he has to be rebuked by a flea, by this man who's clearly humbling himself before him? And what could Saul do but weep at this broken situation? That's exactly what he does. And then Saul opens his mouth and makes the declaration that probably would have caused David's neck to relax just a little bit. He says, you are more righteous than I. And we've heard this before. We heard this in Genesis. When Judah accuses Tamar of harlotry, and they're planning on executing her, and then she says, no, you're actually the father, Judah. And he makes that same confession, you are more righteous than I. See, it's this sudden movement of role reversal that was so clear in Genesis and now has become real for Saul definitely knew that story. He's gone from being the king to being the captive. And this has just struck Saul like a bolt of lightning out of the sky. And what's more, David has repaid good and Saul has repaid evil. And Saul knows this. Given the choice between good and evil, two choices, each of them chose different fruit. And Saul chose poorly. Well, Saul continues this confession. He recognizes that as righteous as David is, this glory actually belongs to someone else. The glory belongs to the Lord. And so because God is faithful, Saul lives to another day. And then Saul continues his confession and he makes this proverbial statement. If a man finds his enemy on the road, is he going to send him away healthy? And of course, what's Saul been doing all day? He's been out on the road looking for his enemy. And clearly Saul's own words condemn him. He had not had any intent to send David away healthy. He was going to kill him. But David found him first. And not only had David not lit, raised his hand against him, David suppressed the hands of his own men and said, you will not raise your hand against the Lord's anointed. David had provided for the well-being of the king of Israel, even at the cost of his own life. And so Saul pronounces a blessing upon David. May the Lord restore to you good for what you've done. And with this realization in mind, Saul recognizes David's legitimate right to the kingship. And he knows that this is the man who, in fact, has been chosen by Yahweh to lead Israel. 
And a moment later, he realizes this probably has some repercussions for my own family. His mind turns to the future. See, it's not commonly a long life expectancy you'd have after a turnover of power in the year 1000 BC. So Saul asks David to continue in this mercy that he had shown Saul and asks him to prolong the life of his offspring and to ensure that his name would not die. And then the story ends. David swears faithfulness. Saul goes to his house. David goes back to his rocks. And you think, okay, what just happened here? Why, why was this the end of what had been going on for chapters now of David's game of cat and mouse with Saul? Well, we see that David was going through a bit of a probationary trial. And these aren't new to Scripture. They go all the way back to the garden with Adam, given the probation in the garden. See, David had been anointed as king. Saul had been anointed as king. Saul had taken the throne and was in his probationary period, and he failed twice. Most recently in 1 Samuel 13, when what had been his failure was failing to account for the truth of what God had said. He failed to listen to Samuel, and he instead rushed God's timing and offered up sacrifices. And for that, Samuel says, you're going to lose the kingship. And now David, who had been promised the kingdom, sees this opportunity to take it ahead of schedule. And he says, I will not do so. And in doing that, he proves himself to be more righteous than Saul. But like the garden trial with Adam and Eve, David was not left just on his own with no extra inputs to help him along his way. No, his men put false words onto the lips of the Lord, just like the serpent in the garden did with Eve. And they tried, however inadvertently, to entice him into evil. And yet David acted righteously. And so for the Israelites, hearing this story, they realize that this, this righteousness must be the kind of righteousness that we really need in a king. The kind of righteousness that will listen to the word of God and will humble himself even before the authority that God has appointed over him. This kind of king who will obey the Lord and who will not turn his feet either to the left or to the right, this is the king that Israel wanted. This is the king that Israel needed. And yet we know that for David's righteousness, all of his righteousness, as great as it was in the moment, it was only great in that moment because David still had to offer sacrifices. David would still turn this the psalm that we sang was written by David, confessing sin. And he knew that his own righteousness could never secure for him the standing that he needed to solve his biggest problem. And his biggest problem wasn't that he was on the run in rocks, living with 600 guys in a cave trying to not get killed by a king of Israel. His biggest problem was having a broken relationship before God. His biggest problem was his sin. And there was nothing that David's own righteousness could do. And so his righteousness, as great as it is in this moment, points us forward in redemptive history to the one who would be the greater son of David. The greater son of David who understands what righteousness is and obeys fully and perfectly the law. And not merely for himself, because he was sinless, but for David. He obeyed the law for all of those who would call on his name. See, this is this is the righteousness of God that comes through faith. This is the righteousness of God manifested in Christ. This is the righteousness that's not intermittent. 
It's not halting, subject to fits and starts. It's constant, continuous, continual, and offered out in Christ Jesus. See, as Sinclair Ferguson says, you can't have Christ apart from his benefits. You can't have righteousness and not have Christ. To have one is to have the other, and so we look to Christ alone, who is righteous, and he is the one that we worship. This is the one who humbled himself truly, more so even than on the dusty road outside of Engedi, and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Is this the Jesus that you know? Is this the Jesus in whom you have placed your trust? Do you trust in the true living God, Jesus Christ manifested in the flesh and raised and reigning now at God's right hand? Do you trust that he is capable of delivering you from these trials and situations, that he's able to sustain, sustain you guiltless before God's throne? If you don't know this Jesus, turn to him. Turn to him in repentance and faith. Trust in him alone for your salvation because there's never a point in your life where you'll get good enough for God to accept you. You can't clean up your life enough to really pave the way to God's grace. The good news for us is that Christ has done that on our behalf. And he has won the victory for you by his body and blood poured out at Calvary. By his resurrection from the dead, he holds out life to you. And if you do know this Jesus, then you know the hope that you actually have. You know that things might get tough. You may live in a cave, hopefully not literally, for a little while. But you know that this righteousness will ever sustain you through even the difficult times of life. And that in the end, Christ, who earned his highest exaltation, will raise you up on the last day. Because at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And just like Saul had to confess David's righteousness, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know that Jesus' resurrection guarantees you your own resurrection. And you know that any hope placed outside of him is misplaced. So brothers and sisters, be of good faith, be of good heart, and know that this Jesus is faithful. He is righteous, he is just, and he freely offers himself to you. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we thank you for your word that you have given to us in your scripture, that we might know you savingly, that these stories that are thousands of years old show us the truth of our salvation in Christ Jesus, that that which we could not accomplish on our own, you have accomplished for us. And now you hold out your son, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiation for our sins, who is the expiation for our sins, who, who can present us blameless before your throne. We thank you for this hope that we can look forward to the resurrection and that your spirit has sealed this to us. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.